Chapter 11 of The Double Life of Mr. Alfred Burton. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Joe Sela. The Double Life of Mr. Alfred Burton by E. Phillips Oppenheim. Chapter 11. The Gates into Paradise. The girl looked up from her seat wonderingly. His coming had been a little precipitate. His appearance, too, betokened a disturbed mind. There is a front door, she reminded him. There are also bells. I could not wait, he answered simply. I saw the flutter of your gown as I came along the lane, and I climbed the wall. All the way down, I fancied that you might be wearing blue. A slight air of reserve, which she had carefully prepared for him, faded away. What was the use? He was such an extraordinary person. It was not possible to measure him by the usual standards. She was obliged to smile. You find blue becoming? Adorable, he replied fervently. I have dreamed of you in blue. You wore blue only the night before last, when I wrote my little sketch of the pavements of Bond Street on a summer afternoon. She pointed to the journal which lay at her feet. I recognize myself, of course, she declared, trying to speak severely. It was most improper of you. It was nothing of the sort, he answered bluntly. You came into the picture, and I could not keep you out. You were there, so you had to stay. It was much too flattering, she objected. Again he contradicted her. I could not flatter if I tried, he assured her. It was just you, he laughed softly. It is so difficult to argue with you, she murmured. All the same, I think that it was most improper. But then everything you do is improper. You had no right to climb over the wall. You had no right to walk here with me the other afternoon, even though you had driven away a tame cow. You have no right whatever to be here today. What about your wife? I have been to Garden Green, he announced. I offered her emancipation, the same emancipation as that which I myself have attained. She refused it absolutely. She is satisfied with Garden Green. You mean, the girl asked, that she refuses the, the, beans, he said, precisely. She did more than refuse them. She threw them out the window. She has no imagination. From her point of view, I suppose she behaved in a perfectly natural fashion. She told me to go my own way and leave her alone. Edith sighed. It is very unfortunate, she declared, that you were not able to convince her. Is it, he replied. I tried my best, and when I had failed, I was glad. She raised her eyes for a moment, but she shook her head. I am afraid that it doesn't make any difference, does it? Why not? It makes all the difference, he insisted. My dear Mr. Burton, she expostulated, making room for him to sit down beside her, I cannot possibly allow you to make love to me because your wife refuses to swallow a bean. But she threw them out the window, he persisted. She understood quite well what she was doing. Her action was entirely symbolical. She declared for garden green and the vulgar life. For a girl who lived in an old-fashioned garden, who seemed herself to be part of a fairy story, Edith certainly took a practical view of the situation. I am afraid, she murmured, that the divorce courts have no jurisdiction over your case. You are therefore a married man, and likely to continue a married man. I cannot possibly allow you to hold my hand. His head swam for a minute. She was very alluring, with her pale face set in its clouds of golden hair, her faintly wrinkled forehead, her bewitchingly regretful smile, regretful yet in a sense provocative. I am in love with you, he declared. Naturally, she replied. The question is, she paused and looked intently at the tip of her slipper, it was very small and very pointed, and it was quite impossible to ignore the fact that she had a remarkably pretty foot and that she wore white silk stockings. Burton had never known anyone before who wore white silk stockings. I am very much in love with you, he repeated. I cannot help it. It is not my fault. That is to say, it is as much your fault as it is mine. The corners of her mouth twitched. Is it? Well, what are you going to do about it? I'm going to take you down to the orchard through the little gate and across the plank into the hayfield, he announced boldly. I am going to sit with you under the oak tree, where we can just catch the view of the moor through the dip in the hills. We will lean back and watch the clouds, those little white fleecy broken-off pieces, and I will tell you fairy stories. 
We shall be quite alone there, and perhaps you will let me hold your hand. She shook her head, gently but very firmly. Such things are impossible. Because I have a wife at Garden Green? She nodded. Because you have a wife, and because, I had really quite forgotten to mention it before, but as a matter of fact, I am half engaged to someone myself. He went suddenly white. You are not serious, he demanded. Perfectly, she assured him. I can't think how I forgot it. Does he come here to see you? Burton asked jealously. Not very often. He has to work hard. Burton leaned back in his seat. The music of life seemed suddenly to be playing afar off, so far that he could only dimly catch the strains. The wind, too, must have changed. The perfume of the roses reached him no more. I thought you understood, he said slowly. She did not speak again for several moments. Then she rose a little abruptly to her feet. You can walk as far as a hayfields with me, she said. They passed down the narrow garden path in single file. There had been a storm in the night, and the beds of pink and white stalks lay dashed and drooping with a weight of glistening raindrops. The path was strewn with rose petals, and the air seemed fuller than ever of a fresh and delicate fragrance. At the very end of the garden, a little gate led into the orchard. Side by side they passed beneath the trees. "'Tell me,' he begged in a low tone, "'about this lover of yours.' "'There is so little to tell,' she answered. "'He is a member of the firm who published books for my father. He is quite kind to both of us.' He used to come down here more often, even, than he does now, and one night he asked my father whether he might speak to me. And your father? My father was very much pleased, she continued. We have little money and father is not very strong. He told me that it had taken a weight off his mind. How often does he come? Burton asked. He was here last Sunday week. Last Sunday week, and you call him your lover? No, I have not called him that, she reminded him gently. He is not that sort of man. Only I think that he is the person whom I shall marry, some day. "'I am sure that you are beginning to like me,' he insisted. She turned and looked at him, at his pale, eager face with the hollow eyes, the tremulous mouth, a curiously negative and wholly indescribable figure, yet in some dim sense impressive through certain unspelt suggestions of latent force. No one could have described him in those days, though no one with perceptions could have failed to observe much that was unusual in his personality. "'It is true,' she admitted. "'I do like you. You seem to carry some quality with you which I do not understand. What is it, I wonder?' It is something that reminds me of your writing. I think it is truthfulness, he told her. That is no virtue on my part. It is sheer necessity. I am quite sure that if I had not been obliged, I should never have told you that it was I who stared at you from the common there, one of the hideous little band of trippers. I should not even have told you about my wife. It is all so humiliating. It was yourself which obliged yourself, she pointed out. I mean that the truthfulness was part of yourself. Do you know it has set me thinking so often? If only people realized how attractive absolute simplicity absolute candor is. The world would be so much easier a place to live in, and so much more beautiful. Life is so full of small shams, so many imperfectly hidden little deceits. Even if you had not told me this strange story about yourself, I think that I should still have felt this quality about you. I should like, he declared, to have you conceive a passion for the truth. I should like to have you feel that it was not possible to live anyhow or anywhere else save in its light. If you really felt that it would be like a guiding star to you through life, you would never be able to even consider marriage with a man whom you did not love. This evening, she said slowly, he is coming down. I was thinking it all over this afternoon. I have made up my mind to say nothing about you. Since you came, however, I feel differently. I shall tell him everything. Perhaps, Burton suggested, hopefully, he may be jealous. It is possible, she assented. He does not seem like that, but one can never tell. He may even give you up, she smiled. If he did, she reminded him, it would not make any difference. I will not admit that, he declared. I want your love. I want your whole love. I want you to feel the same things that I feel, in the same way. You live in two places, in a real garden and a fairy garden. 
the fairy garden of my dreams. I want you to leave the real garden and let me try and teach you how beautiful the garden of fancies may become. She sighed. Alas, she said, it is because I may not come and live always in that fairy garden that I am going to send you away. Don't, he pleaded. Not altogether at any rate. Life is so short, so pitifully incomplete. We live through so many epochs, and each epoch has its own personality. It was not I who married Ellen. It was Burton, the auctioneer's clerk. I cannot carry the burden of that fellow's asinine mistakes upon my shoulders forever. I am afraid, she murmured, that however clever the Mr. Burton of today may be, he will never be able to rid himself altogether of his predecessor's burdens. They were leaning over the gate, looking into the deserted hayfield. The quiet of evening had stolen down upon them. He drew a little nearer to her. Dear, he whispered, there isn't really any Ellen, there isn't really any woman in the world of my thoughts, the world in which I live, save you. She was almost in his arm. She did not resist, but she looked a little pitifully into his face. You will not, please, she begged. Once more the music passed away into the clouds. It was the gate into paradise over which he had leaned, but the gate was locked, and as he stood there it seemed to grow higher and higher until he could not even see over the top. Almost roughly he turned away. Quite right, he muttered. I must not touch the princess of my fairy garden. Only let us go back now, please. I cannot stay here any longer. She obeyed at once. There was a queer, pathetic little droop at the corners of her lips, and she avoided his eyes. Goodbye, he said. His tone was dull and spiritless. Something, for the moment, seemed to have passed from him. He seemed, indeed, to lack both inspiration and courage. Her fingers clung slightly to his. She was praying, even, that he might laugh to scorn her unspoken appeal. He moved a yard away and stood looking at her. Her heart began to beat wildly. Surely her prayer would be granted. The light of adoration was coming back to his eyes. I cannot see the truth, he cried hoarsely. You belong to me. I feel that you belong to me. You are part of the great life. I have found you. You are mine. And yet, I feel I mustn't touch you. I don't understand. Perhaps I shall come back. He turned and hurried off. She watched him until he was a speck upon the road. Watched him, even then, from among the shadows of the trees. There was a lump in her throat and a misty light in her eyes. She had forgotten everything that had seemed absurd to her in this strange little romance. Her eyes and her arms, almost her lips, were calling him to her. End of chapter 11 Recording by Joe Sela